Starting at verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to, the human, tra- according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love and your mercy that you've given to us. We pray that you would come now in power by the Holy Spirit and teach us, um, help us see and understand your word. Uh, We thank you. We love you. We know that you are the teacher. And so, Holy Spirit, we are absolutely dependent upon you this morning. I also pray, Lord, that you would um, make clear the good news of the gospel for what Christ has done for us as we look at this text. Um, And Lord, as we, I just pray for a special help uh, as we get into some understanding of philosophy and what that looks like, Lord, I pray that it wouldn't be confusing, but it would just be really, really clear. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, if you remember last week, Chris, whenever he was preaching, he, he looked at verses 1 through 5, and it was a chiasm, which is kind of like a, uh, uh, a teaching that has um, one and then one prime. And so like verse 1 and verse 5 are kind of the same kind of mirror teachings. But as you go to the centerpiece of that kind of mountaintop, uh, it teaches you what is the most important thing of the text. And so when we we're looking at that last week, we got to the end of verse 2 and into verse 3, and that was kind of the, the centerpiece of the chiasm of, of talking about the treasures of Christ. So it, if you look at the very end of 2, it says, The knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, and whom are all hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so that, that's going to serve for us as a little bit of a jumping point into what we're looking at at verse 6, because, and you get to verse 6, it says the therefore. And so obviously you know this a billion times, but whenever you see therefore, you look up and you say, based on the stuff I've learned and read, he's going to explain some things more. And so, uh, and therefore, uh, and he says, as you have received Christ Jesus. And so he's building on the fact that as we look at the end of verse 2 and end of verse 3, that Christ G- Jesus is our absolute treasure. Christ Jesus is our absolute treasure. And so since that's the case, based on that, since he is your treasure, he wants to talk about what it looks like to walk in him. What does the, the steadfastness of your walk look like in regard to Christ? And so we're looking at that in verse 6 and 7. Now, at, that's kind of our introduction. And we have a conclusion in verse 9 and 10 where Christ is our only hope and it's all about him. And then in verse 8 will be our kind of middle piece of the sermon. So there's really three pieces that we're looking at here today. Verse 6 and 7 is piece 1. Verse 8 is piece 2. Verse 9 and 10 is piece 3. Okay, got it? So five verses, verse 6 and 7, piece 1. Verse 8, piece 2. Verse 9 and 10, piece 3. And that's the conclusion. Uh, and so... Six and seven and nine and ten are kind of our, our bookends, which help us understand that middle point verse, which is Christ and philosophy. Now, here we go. So looking at verse six, uh, therefore, uh, just as you received Christ. So um, the heart of really, uh, of all of the book of Colossians uh, and the heresies that Paul is writing about, which will be addressed later, uh, 
Uh, today in verse 8, when I re- look at verse 8, and I said that's kind of the, the, the prime point of what we're looking at, he's going to really explain the heresies in verses 16 through 23, and that's not my job today. So my job is just to talk about Christ mostly because that's what he's doing in verses 6 through 10 and the glories of Christ. And that's why next week in verses 11 through 15, he's going to talk about the gospel. And then he's going to talk about that Colossian heresy in 16 through 23. And I don't want to, you know, take all of David's thunder that he's been studying and studying and studying for weeks on that major, major heresy he's going to unpack for us in verses 16 through 23. So I'm just of unpacking of the, the Colossian heresy in 16 through 23. Uh, but he does refer to it a little bit in verse 8. So I'm going to do that. But Back to verse 6 and 7. 6 and 7 um, uh, establish for us the foundation of the attack on the Colossian heresy. So if you look at it, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. O'Brien says that this is the heart of the letter, uh, these particular two verses, laying the foundation to, uh, to refute the Colossian heresy. And so in verse 6 and 7, he tells us, uh, just as you receive Christ, then you need to have these kinds of steadfastness of so, uh, how, Calvin says, having once received Christ, that will be of no advantage to them unless they remain in him, just as you have received Christ, so walk in him. So let's take a look at what these, what these things tell us. As we, look, as we know it, and therefore tells us to look up into the verse 2 and 3, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, and whom are all hidden, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in Christ is where we find treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So it's in Christ where wisdom and knowledge are going to be found. Now, the Colossian heresy is, is primarily going to say wisdom and knowledge can be found in other kinds of things. And he's trying to say that's not exactly true. Other kinds of things, unless they're finding their foundation in Christ, they're going to lead you astray. And so any kind of wisdom, knowledge, pursuit of these things, and understanding of any of those things, if they don't have Christ as their only source, and Christ as their only hope, and Christ as really their ultimate end, then they're, they're leading you astray. And so that's true today. I mean, you can look all over the place and find all kinds of things that sound really, really interesting and fun, and, and, and they, lots of stuff to study. And, but if they don't have Christ as their as their, their central peace, as their only hope, as the foundation and, and really their ultimate end, then they're leading you astray. That's what Paul's trying to help them see here. And so he wants them not just to see that that's important, but in verse 6 and 7, that their own lives are centered around Christ. So if Christ is going to be the centerpiece of all knowledge and study, then he's got to be actually who you are living your life for. So in verse 6 and 7, in the intro, you can go ahead and put up there, the steadfastness of faith, he's helping us see this um, necessity to have a steadfastness of faith. And he's going to do it by using three metaphors, three metaphors of what the steadfastness of faith looks like. And you can see them, they're right there in the text. Uh, So therefore, as you receive Christ, walk. So the first one, the first metaphor of, of steadfastness uh, of faith is walking. And uh, if you look in uh, Ephesians chapter, I think it's verse 4-1, uh, and, and, and really all throughout the, the, the scriptures, whenever you see this idea of walk uh, in, in the Greek, it's really talking about how you live. So when he says walk here, uh, walk in him, that means live. Like let every day and every step that you're taking throughout life and how you live your life, let it be 
um, rooted in Christ. So similar to Colossians 1.23, I don't know if y'all remember that after it says that you were, you were alienated in verse 21, you've come to know Christ in verse 2. In verse 23, it says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and f- steadfast, not shifting from the hope. So he's telling us that uh, walk in Christ, walk in the pure doctrine of the gospel. Uh, by doing that, you keep yourself away from danger. So the metaphor of steadfastness is it's important about how you live. Live every day, um, not turning away from Christ, but instead being steadfast in your faith for Christ. That's, that's all obvious kinds of things. But he keeps going uh, just to make sure that we understand the steadfastness of faith. It's not just in, in regard to walking, but it's also he used this metaphor of trees. And, uh, and you can see it right there when he says rooted. So rooted. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, uh, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted. So uh, you don't just walk in Christ or live for him, but you also are rooted. The eternal planting that took place at yourself this way. He says uh, uh, this idea of being rooted. For as a tree that has stuck its root deep has a sufficiency of support for withstanding all the assaults of winds and storms. So if anyone is deeply and thoroughly fixed in Christ as a firm root it will not be possible for him to be thrown down from his proper position by any of the machinations of Satan or or workings of Satan. On the other hand, if anyone has not fixed his roots in Christ, he will be carried away with every kind of wind of doctrine, just as a tree that's not supported by any root. And so uh, if we don't have literally our lives kind of with deep roots down in the ground in Christ, then Winds of doctrine that come to us that sound uh, super dressed up and super fancy but don't have anything to do with Christ. If we're not deeply rooted in Christ, then those winds of doctrine will blow us away. When, when I say blow us away, I mean literally blow you away out of Christianity into something that's not Christian anymore. You might think you're still Christian, but the truth is that you're not. Um, and so he's warning that, Paul's warning that to not happen to the Colossians. Therefore, he's warning that to not happen to you. And so he's saying, walk in such a way that exemplifies Christ. Walk in purity of the doctrine of gospel. Um, walk in holiness, but also be rooted. Be rooted in Christ so that whenever life comes at you or fancy doctrines come at you, that you're so rooted in Christ that they don't sway you away from Christ. Uh, then you can see the next one is not just, uh, not just uh, walk and trees, but also foundation. Same kind of metaphor when it says walk, rooted, and then it says built up. This is the prom- uh, process of becoming more like Christ. So you're rooted but you, and you're walking for Christ. You're living for him, but it, you're also deeply desiring to become more and more like him every day. There's a desire within you that you're being built up or becoming like him. The continual action that you want to live your life to where if temptations come, you don't want to have those things in your life. You want to be like Christ. You want to do Calvin goes on and says uh, about the, the, the idea of foundation. Uh, he said, foundation for a house that is not supported by a foundation quickly falls to ruins. The case is the same with those who lean on any other foundation other than Christ, or at least are not securely founded on him, but have a building of their faith suspended, as it were, in the air. 
in consequence of their weakness and levity. Just imagine, uh, instead of having a foundation on the ground, they're having a foundation just literally suspended in the air. It's kind of like that Up movie. The house is just kind of floating around the whole time. Uh, That's what it's like. You're literally just the Up movie floating around with no foundation, and eventually it's going to come crashing down. I can't remember in the movie if it crashes down. No spoilers here, so I have no clue. I can't remember it. Um, But the point is... uh, if you're going to, as he says, just as you receive Christ, he says the steadfastness of doing that, just as you received him, then you need to walk, you need to be rooted, and you need to be built up. And if that happens, then you are, as it says, established in the faith. And so this phrase, established in the faith, is really just repeating the three metaphors of what's going on into a concise word saying, these three metaphors, which are walk and trees and foundation, those three metaphors display that someone is actually established in the faith. Am I established in the faith? Established in the faith. Do I have roots deep? Am I being built up into Christ? Then I am established in the faith. Established doesn't mean arrived. It just means I'm established and now I'm ready to live my life for Christ. Um, And then he ends with this apropos to what we had this past week, right? Uh, To on Thursday, abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving, not a throwaway line, not a throwaway line. Christians should be uh, the most grateful people there are. So don't, uh, don't act with a presumption of entitlement. Instead, abound in thanksgiving. Um, we should be happy, happy people. We should be the kind uh, reali- that realize that everything that's given to us is always a gift from God. Therefore, we abound in thanksgiving. We're always thankful. Calvin warns this. Calvin warns this. Ingratitude is very frequently the reason why we are deprived of the light of the gospel as well as other divine favors. Calvin said that. What? Calvin said? Are you serious? Ingratitude is very frequently the reason we are deprived of the light of the gospel. That's pretty amazing. Because he's putting it in the hands of man there, right? Calvin, Mr. Reform, Mr. God's in control, putting it in the hands of, the, of man and saying, ingratitude is the reason why sometimes you're deprived of the light of the gospel, as well as other divine favors. And so he establishes, before we get into verse 8, where it's, it's a lot of confusing about philosophy, he establishes everything to say, it, um, it's all foundationed on Christ, and so walk in him. And then he finishes that in verses 9 and 10 with talking about Christ. And then we get into this kind of middle ground on verse 8 where some of the main teaching is being introduced but not explained to its entirety. So again, I'm not taking David's thunder for 16 through 23. All right. So when we get to verse 8 here, um, G.K. Beale, regarding to this transition from verse 6 and 7 into verse 8, we'll read verse 8 so we can see uh, what it's talking about. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Now, that could be proof texted in all kinds of bad ways. We're not doing that today. We're going to understand what that means. So, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, uh, according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That's verse 8. So, G.K. Beale says, in contrast to the reliability instructions summarized to us in verses 6 and 7, the hearers are Uh, to be wary of espousing any teaching or philosophy that contradicts the true teachings that they have actually received from Christ. So this word received is key. We're going to come back to that if you see it in verse 6. Received, uh, just 
don't think of the word received as uh, the way that we use it in 21st century America. Like I've decided to receive Christ. Uh, I am in total control. And so what I did was I received Christ as he, he was knocking at the door and I thought I would be a good host. And I would say, here is the door of my heart. I have received you in and now I have let you come into me. Uh, received had a much more technical sense in the first century than just that. Uh, There's a lot more kind of weight to it where the receiving, like uh, if 1 Corinthians 15, therefore, brothers, what I received, I, give to, I preached to you again. Like this receiving is all of the teachings and all of the things that come along with Christ, they have been passed down to me and I have received all of these teachings passed down have been given to me. And so I, I say yes to these things and I believe these things because they have been passed down to me and I receive them. It's, it's, it's not just kind of like you've decided to say yes to the invitation. It's not, it's not really that. It's a, it's a receiving of all the teachings that have been coming to you. So anyway, here we go. Um, when we get to verse 8, we want to make sure we take this and understand it. So see, see to it that no one takes you captive. So Paul's launching the warning to the Colossians and he's saying, see to it that no one, and he uses this phrase, takes you captive. So there's an idea in that wrong understanding, wrong teaching, wrong ways to understand knowledge can literally take you captive. If they're not, if they're not grounded in Christ, they will literally, as he says, take you captive. Take you captive is just one word in Greek, but it's a compound word, sule ago. It literally means sule spoils of war ago to carry off. So if you go into war and you beat everybody and you take all the spoils of war and bring it back, that's taking captive the spoils of war. And so he's saying that this can happen. Literally wrong ways or wrong teachings can come in like a, like a war, like a battle and defeat you and take what would be you know, wrong thinking or even uh, Satan. So literally, it's, t- it's saying uh, taking you as a kidnapped person in a warlike type situation. That's what wrong philosophy or believing in that can do. So when he says, see to it that no one takes you captive, have a war type mentality here of, of being kidnapped. Think of that. Philosophy can be so dangerous. The philosophy that Paul's talking about here in, in Colossians 2. Philosophy can be so dangerous that it can literally defeat you like in a battle, kidnap you, and carry you off like the spoils of war and take you captive and make you a prisoner of war. It's that dangerous. Wrong understandings of Christ can do that. I've seen it as a pastor over the last 13 years. John MacArthur warns it about, warns pastors to see this. He says, surely it grieves the heart of any pastor to learn of spiritual children who by immaturity are susceptible to danger of false teaching and they fall prey to wrong teachings like a cult. Yet many have been duped into thinking they have actually found some truth, which is literally a lie that has made them captive to false teaching. And so to that those who have been ransomed and redeemed by Christ should be so vulnerable by ignorance and thus in spiritual war actually become prisoners of some spiritual predator with false doctrine. And so he warns them, don't let this happen because it can. And he, under, he wants to help us understand what, it's, what it means. He says, so see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Philosophy. Now, 
Um, when we get to this term philosophy, we don't need to think of it necessarily in terms of today's kind of study of philosophy in the university. Um, Christians can sometimes joke that philosophy takes simple things and makes them unintelligible or turns solutions into problems or uh, using this some, some people have taken this text, see to the annotation captive by philosophy to proof text that you shouldn't take a philosophy class in college or anything like that. That's not really the case of what he's saying. So what is it that's ha- happening here? What is it that we're supposed to fear? Um, so in its simplest sense, philosophy, the word philo, Sophia, philo, love, Sophia, wisdom, just means literally loving wisdom. So in its simplest sense, philo, love, Sophia, wisdom, uh, it's just the idea of loving wisdom, uh, studying things so that you understand how they happen and loving the understanding of that. So it, uh, it's not necessarily, and it's, uh, and it's meaning of the word wrong. Philosophy is not necessarily in its bad. So what is it that we're supposed to fear? What's going on here? Um, Paul is rejecting a particular type of manifestation of philosophy that is happened in Colossae. Um, And so Paul's wanting to address that. Uh, And so we don't want to be anachronistic. Anachronistic just means taking a 21st century meaning of a word uh, and then looking, you know, way back in the past and we have this meaning and we look at them where they had a word but it didn't mean the same to them and we say, how could you do this? Whenever they're like, uh, the word meant something different over here than what you're doing. So I, I, I'm not doing what you're saying. That's anach- anachronism is whenever you take what it means now and then going back to them and say, what's wrong with you? You're like, so we don't want to take the, the philosophy of 21st century and run back to the first century and say, how could you believe in philosophy? Because they just think, well, what do you mean? Because like philosophy means something different to me than to you. And so we don't want to practice anachronism and make something mean in the past what it means today. Um, so what did philosophy mean in the first century? As I said, philo, love, Sophia, wisdom. So taken together means loving wisdom. So in a simple sense, it just means to learn new things. That's good. Learning new things is good. So what's going on here specifically taken together? I mean, what does it mean specifically here with Paul? What is he doing? And as, as I said, Paul is rejecting a particular type of manifest manifestation of philosophy that had popped up here in Colossae where they were pretending to have wisdom when they really did not have wisdom. And he's addressing that. So the precise way to understand it is instead of thinking it as two things, um, or instead of thinking it as philosophy, then we should look at the construction of how Paul's addressing it. So watch what it says. See to it that no one takes you captive carries you off in the spoils of war by, and then it has forward and, and empty deceit. So that little chi, that, that's the Greek word and, in between philosophy and, and empty deceit, we should think of those things together. So the philosophy that's, that's filled with empty deceit, don't let anybody take you captive by the love of, of knowledge that's filled with empty deceit. That's what Paul's addressing. So it's not a proof text to not study. It's the, it's the idea of putting uh, empty, to see, empty deceit with philosophy. Lightfoot says it this way. 
and he's just getting real technical about Greek, but he just says the absence of both preposition and article in the second clause shows that empty deceit describes and qualifies philosophy. In other words, the empty deceit after philosophy uh, is describing the word philosophy. So it's the kind of philosophy that's filled with empty deceit. Don't let anybody take you captive by philosophy that's filled with empty deceit. That's what he's saying that we're supposed to do. So now we're getting somewhere. It's the kind of philosophy that intentionally is deceiving people. Now we're understanding what Paul's talking about. And that's how Calvin, uh, taken all together, Calvin defines it this way. Everything that men contrive of themselves when wishing to be wise through a means of their own understanding and that not... uh, and that not without a superficial pretext of reason so that as to have plausible appearance. Or basically, uh, the way we would say it down in the South is just thinking too highly of yourself for no good reason. You're thinking too highly of yourself for no good reason. That's basically what he's saying. And so this philosophy of empty deceit is you think you're way smarter than you are, but you just talk nonsense. And so don't be held captive or don't be taken captive by people that think they know what they're talking about when they have absolutely no reason to think that they have know what they're talking about. That's what Paul's saying is going on in Colossians. They don't know what they're talking about and you shouldn't be listening to them. And so he's going to actually give us three specific understandings of that philosophy filled with empty deceit. And he, we can see it because he's going to repeat this word uh, in the Greek. It's even actually repeated for us in um, in the English force. So, so see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit that, that's taken together. And then it has this according to. Notice how that repeats three times. According to human tradition, according to elemental spirits, and not according to Christ. That according to in the Greek is kata. Kata, K-A-T-A. Um, so the, we're going to look at the three katas of philosophy. So these are kind of the, the three according to's of philosophy in verse 8. Or, or really, um, they're three sources of vain speculation. They're the three sources of philosophy that's filled with empty deceit. And he gives us three examples of them. Now, I'm not going to go too far into this because, again, 16 to 23 is really the big explanation where Paul gets into the meat of the entire argument in Colossians where he just destroys all the Colossian heresy. And that's a couple sermons from, from now. So I'm just going to do a, a brief kind of intro in 6 through 10 when I get here to verse 8 of what he's talking about because the main 7 is about Jesus, verse 9 and 10 is about Jesus, 11 through 15 is about Jesus. And so eight's just that kind of launching uh, cannonball over the gate to say, this is what I'm about to talk about in 16 to 23, but really I'm going to talk about Jesus a lot before I do that. That's what's happening here. So verse 8, uh, so we'll see these three katas of philosophy or basically the three according to's. So number one, or number A, I don't know what I have up there. Um, philosophy kata human tradition or philosophy according to human tradition. Yes. Does it say of? Okay. Um, so philosophy of or kata human tradition. Philosophy according to human tradition. So you can see that right there in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. So what is this uh, philosophy according to human tradition? Human tradition paradosis. That which is given from one person to another. Well, that sounds nice. Um, human tradition, I'm passing these truths down to you from one human to the next. What is it that he's meaning? He's meaning here when he talks about tradition, he means that tradition is nothing more than ignorance and falsehood handed down from one generation to one generation 
to one generation. It's not necessarily meaning good things. It's the kind of traditions that we hand down from one generation to the next that are bad. Things that aren't true. And so uh, it's, thinking that we ha- it's thinking that we have to do something a certain way because we've always done it that way. And we're still doing it, but we don't even need to do it anymore. Here's what I mean. Here's an example. I've heard this. This, this is astounding. There was this church. My friend told me about this. There was this church where these, these, these kids would, would come in and they would carry these kind of sticks like that stuck up in the air. And they would walk halfway into the church. And whenever they'd get there, they'd squat down and they'd walk like this for the next few steps. And then they'd get about eight steps. They'd stand back up and they would bring it in. And they always walked into the church that way. And they're like, uh, why, why do they do that? I don't understand why they do that. And they're like, well, that's what they've always done. That's the way you're supposed to do. When you walk halfway into the church, you squat down, you walk six steps squatting, and then you get back up and you walk back in when you're bringing this, I don't even know what it was, into the church. That's the way they started their service. It was a long time ago. Like, well, that doesn't make sense. We don't need to do that. Why do you do that? Well, they did some research and they figured out why. That whenever, a long time ago, a hundred years before they were doing that, that, when they were walking in, the ceiling was low right here. And they didn't want to hit the stick on the ceiling. So they squatted down to make sure they didn't hit the ceiling. And when they cleared it, they stood back up and they walked forward. And then they just kept doing it after they fixed the ceiling. Well, that's ridiculous, right? That's doing something according to human tradition that makes no sense, right? And so Paul's saying, don't do that. The idea of just doing stuff, philosophy according to human tradition, is not the way you live. Um, Whenever you... uh, or just practicing stuff just to practice stuff that makes no sense. Don't do that kind of stuff. And the, the, the Colossians were being told to do this. And so um, Paul doesn't want them to do that. So here's, here's, here's what I mean. So uh, in the first century, things were handed down uh, or received over a long period of time. And that's good. Things that were handed down were considered good. Usually the new stuff today is considered what's good. Old's bad. But back then, old was good. And so Jesus was confronting this kind of mentality. If you look in Mark chapter 7, he talks about this just to give you an illustration of philosophy according to human tradition where Jesus says, this thing that you're doing, you don't need to do. In Mark chapter 7, this is what he says. I'm going to start at verse 1. I'm going to go through verse 9. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they, they saw that some of the disciples ate with their hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat uh, unless they had washed their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they had come to, to, uh, from the marketplace, uh, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining walk, according to the tradition of the elders. Remember, remember the word walk and live are almost interchangeable? Here's, here's another example of that. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Or basically, you know, y- y'all eat with dirty hands. Uh, And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines of the commandments of men. And he says this, you leave the commands of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So there's basically like, here's what the Lord has commanded and just to make sure you don't break that, you've added all this extra stuff just to make sure you don't break what God said. And you're holding everybody to these other things uh, just to make sure you don't break this. You don't have to do that. All this stuff you made up, you can just swipe it out. And just this right here, right, that's what you're supposed to obey. 
You're holding to traditions of man and making them like they're they're God's commands. And he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. You, You don't need to do that. And it's the same point that Jesus is making there that Paul is making here. Um, the traditions that we've received uh, from, from Christ, we should walk in those. But the things that are being added to them, we don't need to. So when he says, philosophy according to human tradition, don't follow those things. This is just the idea of what could be perceived as legalism. Things that are being added to the faith that don't make you any more Christian or not Christian. And so... Uh, The contrast that's being pointed here is pretty clear. The Colossians did not receive their teaching um, by just human tradition, but they had received it from the Lord Jesus Christ, the reconciler of all creation. And therefore, what they received from Christ is far more superior than human tradition. And so follow Christ and all of the extra human legalistic traditions that are being put on top of that, you don't have to follow. That's the first thing. Uh, So when we're talking about uh, Christ versus philosophy, follow Christ, not just extra human traditions. Next, you can see in there, it says, um, philosophy of an empty seat according to human tradition. Then he says, according to the elemental spirits of the world. So kata, stoikeia, tau, uh, cosmos, basically. The, the, so the, according to the elemental spirits, that's the stoicheia. And listen, this, this stoicheia is only used a couple times in the New Testament, and it is just like really hard to translate. And so when we see, you can go ahead and put up number two, according to the elemental spirits of the world, understanding what Paul is saying when he's saying, um, follow Christ and don't follow the stoicheia of the world. Everybody's like, what does that mean? That just means who knows? So let's just start off by saying it can mean a lot of stuff. Um, it can mean like elementary principles. It can mean cosmic forces. It could mean demonic spirits. It could mean elemental spirits. The word stoicheia literally just means things in a row or uh, to be in line. Uh, like the alphabet, A, B, C, D, F, G. The, I, the concept of putting the alphabet in a row is stoicheia. So it's the it's the the sum of the parts, the components that make up a part. And so it's really a, a big, vague kind of stoicheia. Like if, if I take all the components of a part and I put it in here, that's the stoicheia. So the elemental spirits of the, the things that make up the world is what he's talking about. So it's, it's, it's difficult to understand. Um, likely, when we see ESV, elemental spirits is, is a good way to, to understand it. Uh, one writer says it this way. Um, it, had, it had a little bit of a distinct meaning. It's, pro, it's, it's probable that in the syn- synchristic teaching, so syncretism, by the way, is just um, taking a bunch of religions, like I like that part of that religion, I like that part, and I like that part, and I like that part, and I'm going to bring all that, and I'm going to make my new religion here called meism. And syncretism is just a gathering together of a bunch of religions to, to your own little thing. So very common in the first century to syncretism where I like some Christianity and I like some of the paganism and I'm just going to put it all together in my syncretistic bowl and this is my new religion called, you know, Fudism. Uh, and, but, you know, they weren't Fud in the first century. It's probable that in the syncretistic teaching uh, being advocated in Colossae, this stoicheia were grouped with angels and seen as controlling heavenly realm and man's access to God's presence. One way 
they could um, be placated was by rigorous subduing of the flesh so as to gain visionary experiences of the heavenly dimension and participate in it as their angelic liturgy. Uh, and by this, the devotees gained fullness of salvation, reached the divine presence, and attained esoteric knowledge which accompanied such visions. Christ had become in them just another intermediary between God and man. So basically they're saying, um, taking all these kinds of elemental spirits and adding them into some kind of extra experience, this experience is what's really getting you close to Christ. It's not Christ himself. Um, and so he's saying, you don't want to be held captive by these elemental spirits of the world or the storkeia of the world because Whatever this stoicheia is, instead of Christ being the source of truth, your source of truth now is just kind of this stoicheia of the world or the elemental spirits of the truth. They were really some kind of quasi-demonic spirit uh, to which the world and unbelievers specifically had foolishly started giving their allegiance and their worship to instead of Christ. And he's saying, so if you are following the, the philosophy of the elemental spirits of the world, your heart's being pulled over towards that as your source of truth instead of Christ. Whatever this elemental spirit is, whatever it is, exactly it is, um, that has become what's drawing your mind instead of Jesus. Here's what this means practically. It means this. The Colossians had come to Christ. Paul wants them to stay in Christ. Paul's in jail. Epaphras runs over to him and is like, hey man, they've got some problems over here. I need for you to write a letter to address those problems. Okay, he writes the letter. And so when he writes the letter... Uh, he clearly uh, thought that um, there was a chance that they would start worshiping the, the creation or the created things rather than the creator. And they would start using the elemental, the stoicheia of the world as their foundation of truth rather than Christ. And he's warning them, don't do that. Keep Christ as the foundation and not the elemental spirits of the world as your foundation. Uh, whether, they're turning to, whether they were turning to worshiping spirits or demons or cosmic forces or whatever that stoicheia is, whatever they were turning to, um, after coming to faith, one can't turn to Christ in the initial faith and then to say, now I'm going to turn to stoicheia of the world, elemental spirits of the world. That would be a sign of immaturity to regress. Once you come to Christ, the source, the fountainhead, the foundation, you don't go to something else. That's turning to immaturity. That's regression in the faith. And Paul doesn't want that to happen. That's going backwards spiritually. And since they are coming to Christ, they must stay within his will and within his teachings. That's the point of what he's trying to make. Don't regress spiritually and stop following the teachings of Christ into whatever it is that is happening today. Now, these kinds of... Uh, Elemental spirits of the world are present today. They're not the same as the Colossians, but there's all kinds of uh, truths being taught all over the world that have nothing to do with Christ. And he's saying, don't follow those things, which leads us into our third one. And he just kind of, this is kind of like the, the blanket statement of it all, right? Where he says, so a kata, human tradition, so just the way we've always done it, don't do that. Let, obey Christ. Or the not having Christ as the foundation, but just the, the, the stoicheia of the world. But then he, just to make sure he, he, he wants to co cover everything is. And don't be held captive by philosophy and empty deceit. The kata Christlessness or philosophy that's not according to Christ. So anything that's just devoid of Jesus, don't turn to that. 
um, because those things are, are not good. Those things are not good. Ultimately, all teaching that's Christless is void and empty at its core. All teaching that's Christless. Now, I'm being careful here because I'm not saying all teaching is empty and void at its core. That's not true. There are people that aren't believers that can teach things that are true that can be helpful and true and help you understand the world. But ultimately, teachings that are Christless are going to be empty and void at their core. Just think of the modern sciences, the modern social sciences, the ones that are Christless, uh, the philosophies that are Christless, not according to Christ, they will eventually lead you to be to things that are empty and void, basically just nihilism, just, just destroy everything, it doesn't matter. Uh, Darwinism, Marxism, uh, almost all psychology. If you're a psych, psych major, I'm sorry. Almost, I said almost. Uh, <laughs> but those things... Those modern social sciences that are Christless were, are ultimately going to uh, be empty and void at their core. Um, to be sure, I want to be sure here, all truth that comes from social sciences are still from God. So social sciences can contain truth. That's fine. And they're from God. But all of these things that, these philosophies that are Christless will eventually be void and empty. So uh, what Paul is explicitly saying here is that philosophy that explicitly teaches things that do not have Christ as their source are ultimately void and empty at their core. Calvin looking at this, and I kid you not, he literally says this. This cracked me up because this sounds like I would say it. Um, <laughs> he says this, whatever is hatched in man's brain is not in accordance with Christ. Um, that just sounds like South, somebody wrote that in South Carolina. And I hatched that in your brain. That's not from Jesus. Um, but Calvin actually said that. So uh, if it's not from God or if it's Christless, then those philosophies are empty and void. So what does this practically mean then? Because I just gave like a lot of stuff about philosophy and things that are uh, according to the elemental spirits. And I wanted to like, didn't want it just to be like, oh, that was, that was interesting. Whatever. Um, so... I wanted to say, like, what does this practically mean? It means this. This is what it means for you today. Like, tomorrow when you wake up and you're thinking, what in the world did verse 8 mean to me? This is what it means. All of your studies should have Christ at their center. You should study. You should study everything you can that you're interested in. And when you're doing it, if it doesn't teach Christ at its center and at its core, then you should think, red flag. All of our studies should have Christ at their center. Paul here is not disparaging critical thinking. We need critical thinkers. Critical thinkers are important. And he's not, also, he's not disparaging rational investigation of truth, principles, or knowledge. That's important. Deep thinkers are vastly important, especially Christian deep thinkers. So he's not saying don't do that. He's saying when you do that, Christ should be at their center of all of your thoughts. As long as they are conforming to Christ, this is good. We should continually acknowledge these deep truths that are being pointed to us in the Christ hymn. That, that Christ hymn is strategically placed by the Holy Spirit as we're leading into all this. Uh, specifically when you read things like what it says here uh, in verse uh, 16 into 17 where it says, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. 
So Paul is not disparaging critical thinking. As a matter of fact, he wants us to do it, but he wants us to realize that all of it must have Christ at their center. False teaching or philosophy with empty deceit, um, as Paul calls it, dresses itself up then, therefore, as seductive, and it's dreadfully misleading. So study that does not have Christ at its core is seductively dressed up intentionally to lead us away from Christ and a deep belief in Christ, dignity. But really, it's an evil tool in the hand of the principalities and powers of this world. And the demonic forces seek to use it to terrorize the lives of men and women, specifically Christian men and women. And worst of all, it stands, as O'Brien says, diametrically opposed to Christ. That's what it means. That's what verse 8 means for you, is study everything you can and make sure that when you do, it all finds its foundation and its core at Christ. And if it doesn't, then be massively wary of it because it's not just out there as passive. It's actively seeking to try to seduce you away from Jesus and believe wrong things. Well, that brings us to uh, something happier. <laughs> Verse 9 and 10. So back to, you can go to number, point number three. Uh, it's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. Verse 9 and 10 uh, now, verse 9 is a restatement of some of the Christ hymn, verse 19. If you look at chapter 1, 19, I'll read it to you just so you can hear how similar they are. Chapter 1, verse 19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's 119. Now look at 2.9. 2.9 says, um, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So they're almost, almost similar. Uh, and so Paul restates Christ's deity from 119. And 2.9, 2.9 is, uh, make sure we read it again, 2.9. For in him, that's in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He even uses this word body, soma, uh, to, to talk about that he's actually matter, made up of real matter. Because remember, Colossians think matter's evil. Therefore, God could certainly not dwell bodily in matter because God can't be in matter because matter's evil. So Jesus can't be God because he would never dwell bodily in human form. And he's just crushing all of that Colossian heresy and saying, 2.9 is one of the most blessed passages which um, proves Christ's Christology over and over. Like he is 100% God and 100% man, no question. So it's one of the most explicit verses in the Bible declaring the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. And any attempt to prove Christ as, as 100% God and 100% man is just shattered all in 2.9. One verse. You can just take them straight to 2.9. Um, and so it tells us that uh, all the fullness, the fullness, the pleroma, all of the fullness, this is everything, or, or completeness also. It can be understood as completeness. All the fullness of God um, dwells in him bodily. So in order to destroy this uh, heresy by the Colossians, it's saying that Jesus does not have, that was teaching that Jesus, think about which, how full, we, we would just, all the fullness of God is in Christ. Just as believers, we, we would just infinitely say that's, that's huge, right? We have to wrap our minds around as much as we can at verse 9 to feel the unbelievable awesomeness of verse 10. Think about all the fullness that's in Christ that's dwelling bodily. 
for all the fullness of, of, of Christ, for all the fullness, for in him all the fullness of, of uh, God dwells bodily. And it says, and you have been filled in him. That's intentional. Play Roma, play Roma, twice there. As we, you can go ahead and put up point A. In Christ is the fullness of God. And he's wanting the Colossians, he's wanting to encourage them to help them see just how blessed they are to be in Christ. Think of the vastness of which the, the deity is in Christ. And then he says, and you have been filled in him. Put up the second one. We have been filled with him. That's encouraging. To the same measure, that's not a great word, but it's the one I can think of. To the same measure of which Christ has the fullness of God in him, you have been filled with Christ. Tuesday. That's super encouraging. And it will be really encouraging this coming Tuesday or Friday or whatever day where you're uh, just messed it up big time in sin and you're just thinking, oh, I stink again at being a Christian. Oh, man, God's got to be so disappointed in me. And he's telling you, um, in Christ, you have the full measure of all the Christness in you. And so what that means is when we say uh, that God has manifested himself fully and perfectly to us in Christ and we have this full measure uh, he's wanting us to understand that we are literally perfect in Christ right now. You are counted 100% righteous and counted 100% perfect in Christ. So why does Paul insert this particular statement that we're looking at about all the fullness of Christ? He's wanting to counter this attraction to philosophy and saying um, the fullness of God is present in Christ, not philosophy. Not in just knowledge in of itself. And he takes the idea of the filling and he declares it over Christians. And he's saying, with the same play Roma that Jesus has in his deity, the same fullness that Christ has in his deity, we actually have it with Jesus. Christ is the fullness or the completeness of God. And we have been filled with that fullness or that completeness now when we're in Christ. That's amazing. That's pretty awesome. It says that we are in Christ today, not, not one day in heaven where we're finally glorified and we don't sin anymore, but in heaven, right now, today, we are counted perfect in Christ. The perfectness and the perfection of Christ has literally, as a believer, been filled in you right now. That's amazing news, especially whenever I feel like I'm such a, I'm such a you know, garbage hole. Um, G.K. Beale says it this way. Believers' union with Christ means that just as Christ has become the diving temple presence of God, so they have begun to identify with and experience the effect of being filled with the tabernacling presence of Christ's divine fullness. In other words, um, your union with Christ is so sure, it's so full, it's so complete that the tabernacling presence, or the Holy Spirit, as we would say, is literally residing in you. You have God in you now. So you have the righteousness of Christ declared over you, and God himself now living in you from Christ, which is pretty amazing. And then he says this, For in him all the fullness uh, dwells bodily, and you have been filled with him. And then he just has this last line, Who is the head of all rule and authority. Um, going back to the Christ hymn in 16, verse 16, if you look at it, where it says, um, for in him all the, 
By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And so as he says that, he's helping us see that since Christ is the head of all things, then, and so he, when he declares the fullness in you and completeness in you because of his work on the cross, it's true. That's us. We're the people of God, and it's ultimately been declared of us. So if you're in Christ, these things are true of you. These things are true of you, which should cause you to rejoice and celebrate and worship. These things are amazing, that in Christ, because he died on the cross for me, and I've repented of my sin, and I've asked forgiveness of my sin, and I've put my trust in him, and his righteousness was given to me, right now, today, now as Christ sees me, he sees me as perfect and righteous. So ultimately, this is what this text teaches. This text teaches that it's all about Christ. Nothing comes before him in our lives. No philosophy, no tradition of man, no things created, uh, no elemental spirits, no demonic spirits, no Christless ideology. None of those things ever come before him because we have actually been filled with the perfection of Christ or filled by the incarnate, incarnate Christ and his righteousness. And so now everything that our lives, everything that happens in our lives, we would say we want to do everything for him. It's all about him. That's why he says in verse six, therefore walk or live, be rooted and be built up in Christ. Because now that I'm in Christ, it's not about those vain, empty philosophies. My entire life is about Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we um, think on these things, that our life would be truly about you. That every step we take through life, it would be for Christ. That we would seek to um, know you through your word, be amazed by the righteousness that you've given us in Christ because we have put our faith in you. And Lord, that um, because we have received you by faith, and been declared righteous, that nothing would come and pull us away from you. There are a lot of temptations, not just physical temptations um, to do things, but wrong ideologies, lots of wrong things that are being um, taught to us or told to us that don't have you as their foundation. And I pray that those things would be easily seen by, by by my brothers and sisters in Christ here and they would recognize them quickly and see that they're wrong and that they wouldn't be pulled away from Christ because it does grieve not just the heart of a pastor it grieves the church it grieves the people of God to see people they love be pulled away into false ideologies and away from Jesus and so Lord I pray that you would protect all here in this church from that that they would have Christ as their core always. And they would walk in Christ because you have declared us righteous in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.